Hello, everybody. Hello. Um, welcome to our first Winter Words event of the 2017 season. Um, I'm Jamie Kravitz, the Managing Director of Aspen Words, and this is Adrian Brodeur, our Executive Director. Um, and we're thrilled to be here with you tonight on our first event in the 20th anniversary season of Winter Words. Yay. <laughs> um, um, Many of you have watched this organization shift, reorganize, and grow over the past 20 years, and it's you, our community, who make events like tonight possible. We have a short list of wonderful people to thank, and I hope you'll give them all a big round of applause when I'm done. Uh, first and foremost, thank you to the 2017 Winter Awards uh, presenting sponsors, Beth and Josh Mondry, Helen and Wally Obermeyer, and Les Dames de Aspen. Um, we couldn't fulfill Aspen Words' mission to encourage writers, inspire readers, and connect people through the power of stories without our grantors and sponsors. The City of Aspen, the Thrift Shop of Aspen, the Aspen Times, Aspen Public Radio, Aspen Sojourner, and Aspen 82. Um, we'd like to give a special thanks to Fr Fry's Properties for housing Azarna PC while she's here in town, uh, to Isbarian Rug Company for making our stage beautiful, um, to the Aspen Brewing Company who is hosting a party tonight for 21 to 30 year olds who have attended this event. Um, and to Helen and Wally Obermeyer for hosting tonight's National Council Dinner. Um, one last uh, special thanks to Carmen McCracken at Roaring Fork High School, who hosted um, Azar Nafisi at the school today, early in the morning, and to the high school students who are here in attendance tonight. Um, Last but not least, our most sincere thanks to the advisory board of Aspen Words and to the members and national council members who support Aspen Words programming with their annual contributions. Hi, everyone. Um, it is such an honor to be introducing Azar Nafisi to open our 20th season of Winter Words. And as we launch into the new year, we hope you will share our excitement for the new and familiar ways we will continue to encourage writers, inspire readers, and connect people through the power of stories. This winter word season, we welcome Kevin Fedarko and Pete McBride, who will share with us their journey of walking the Grand Canyon, Yagyesi, who will join us in conversation with Chris Jackson to discuss her bold novel, Home Homegoing, which I just learned today won um, the National Book Critics Circle Award for Best Debut. Adam Gopnik will be here in March to speak on the intersection of politics and family life. And to close our Winter Words season, we will host three alumni of our Aspen Words programs, Stephanie Danler, Anna Noyes, and Molly Prentice, who will speak on their highly acclaimed debut coming-of-age novels. While continuing to provide those programs you know and love, we are also launching something entirely new and very exciting, the Aspen Words Literary Prize. We will be awarding $35,000 annually to a work of fiction that focuses on one of the vital issues of our time, be that social, political, environmental, or otherwise, and thus demonstrates the power of demonstrates the transformative power that literature has on thought and culture. 
With that in mind, how appropriate that tonight we get to welcome and celebrate an author, thinker, and activist who has lived her life as an advocate for the power of fiction. Stuck together. While living in Iran, Azhar Nafisi taught at the University of Tehran and was then expelled in 1981 for refusing to wear the mandatory Islamic veil. It was during this time that she taught literature to a small group of women in secret, later serving as the subject for her beloved memoir, Reading Lolita in Tehran. This masterful work spent 117 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and has been translated into 32 languages. While reading Lolita is a testament to the role of literature in resisting tyranny, her newest work, Republic of, Ima of the Imagination, speak to literature's role in safeguarding democracy. In both these foundational texts, she insists that it is fiction that inspires imagination to make breaking the limits of reality possible. Azar Nafisi now resides in Washington, D.C., working as the executive director of cultural conversations at the Foreign Policy Institute of John Hopkins University. Before welcoming her to the stage, I ask you to consider this quotation from Reading Lolita. A novel is not an allegory. It is the sensual experience of another world. If you don't enter that world, hold your breath with the characters and become involved in their destiny, you won't be able to empathize. And empathy is at the heart of the novel. This is how you read a novel. You inhale the experience. So start breathing. Thank you so much, Adrian and Jamie. It's such an honor and pleasure to be here with you um, tonight. You know, there are certain places where you go where you immediately feel that you're at home uh, in a real sense, because I tell you, I've had also the experience where home is no more home to you. The place where you were born, the language you spoke, everything all of a sudden becomes uh, very foreign. And Aspen Institute is one of those places where I feel so much at home. I mean, how many organizations do you have in USA today that dedicate themselves to the life of ideas and imagination? And uh, so, first of all, I want to tell you how grateful I am that you exist. <laughs> and um, how grateful I am that uh, today I will be able to share uh, my experiences with, with all of you here. I've been here for only two and a half days, and, you know, I come from that crazy city named Washington, D.C., uh, so it just took me a little while to sort of breathe the pure air, uh, no swamps, uh, you know, <laughs> and, 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 you know, just thank um, God or gods or whoever it is that uh, uh, controls our lives or doesn't control our lives, but we would like to believe that it does control our lives, um, that I'm just simply alive, you know. And uh, as my um, reflections and contemplations on this place, because one other thing that I do, wherever I give a talk, I love to walk in the city. 
I love to get a feel of the place where I'm at, to sort of feel some connection to it, and, and um, through that connection to be able to, to speak uh, about my own experiences, and the con connections to this city and to the people within the past two and a half days have been so strong that I decided that in the first part of my talk, I will try to talk about my ideas in relationship to certain uh, very um, uh, unique experiences um, in, in this city. And the first thing that, I, that came to my mind was that everywhere I go, where <coughs> people like you uh, are there, the first thing that comes to my mind is how amazingly lucky those of us are who are readers. Because through being readers, before becoming writers even, through being readers, you connect to people not because of where you're born or because of your job or because of uh, all sorts of um, exigencies and necessities that life imposes on you. You connect to them because you immediately share um, certain passions that while they can be shared and they are common passions, on the other hand, they're also very personal. You know, you're, you're sitting in the metro and, and somebody is reading James Baldwin's Go and Tell It on the Mountain. And you, you immediately start a conversation with them. Or, or on the plane, oh, you've read that, so yes. And before you know it, you're talking about how many children you have, you know, where you're coming from, as if, you know, you've known the guy for forever, ever, ever after. And, and, and the point is that you might not ever share these experiences with people you have known all your life because they do not have that specific special space that uh, transcends the limitations of, of time and space. And, and with me, these connections with Aspen, well, first it began by um, just connecting to people like Adrian, and since I came here, I've had three guardian angels, you know, um, introducing me to the city and uh, uh, taking care of me, uh, and I being so scatterbrained and so scattered really do need taking care of. Um, uh, but uh, I lost the jacket just in half an hour that I was walking around town. <laughs> so <laughs> anybody seen a black knit jacket with buttons? <laughs> but, but anyway, the point about it is that um, um, Nicole and um, Caroline and Tori, I don't know where you are. I love to embarrass you and ask you to uh, get up. And I promise the students. Uh, the, the conversations, the amazing conversations with them, both about our lives and, and, and the, the situation of the country and, and where we're going, where we want to go, as well as just the, the way they were expressing their feelings about both the institute but also as the city. And before coming here, I talked to, to this wonderful reporter from um, Aspen Times, Andrew Travers. Now, now, one thing about this guy, you always know whether people who interview, and some of sometimes I'm not going to name names, but some people who are really famous interviewers, yada yada, you know, you know they haven't read the bloody book. 
you know, you know that the producer told them she likes Saul Bellow. And he'll ask me, oh, so you like Saul Bellow, you know, and you freeze. Or they don't pay any attention to what you have written. They pay attention to where you come from. So you talking about Lolita, they're asking you questions about uh, Rohani, you know. So, you know, the, he, Andrew Travers, was the kind of person I knew was interested in what I had written. He had read it, and it wasn't an interview. It was a conversation. And because it was a conversation, I also asked him about um, the art places I can go to. And of course, he told me about the Aspen uh, Art Museum, about which I will um, talk about. So, and then uh, the other connection was that I went to this. Now, you can tell a town by many things, and I will bring the other things, but one of them is, do they have a great bookstore? <laughs> yeah. And my God, they took me, and, and, and you know, bookstores for me, you know, there's a certain smell to all bookstores. And each one of them are very unique, while also, evoking um, certain familiar emotions. I, I still remember the first bookstore my father would take me um, on weekends and uh, uh, the way I felt so um, grown up in a good way, <laughs> in, uh, not, not in the way that the pilot in Little Prince felt in relationship to Little Prince, um, you know, and, and, and I would search the books, touch the books, and, and, and feel that I was part of uh, this community of invisible people, you know, each of whom will reveal themselves to me once I open the pages. It seemed as if some of these books, um, as soon as you open them, um, images leaped out of the books and, and, and voices um, surrounded you. And so when I went to this bookstore, that was the first impression that I got, you know, the explore, and of course, explore, obviously, you know, and uh, we had a fantastic, I've been having fantastic conversations in the middle of the street, in the car, um, in the bookstore, even with the waitress, I'll talk about that later too, and, and, and so, um, coming to that bookstore brings me, first was the connections, that, um, that are created uh, through um, this um, sort of love uh, for books, no matter where you come from, you have those connections. The second thing is that bookstores, museums, concert halls, theaters, um, institutes like this, colleges, universities, schools, um, they all are places where you can, where by nature, um, they have to be democratic. I mean, on the shelves of this bookstore, um, it is not categorized or the books are not allowed. And I found some really, I don't know if this is the correct word, doozies, no. Is doozies? <laughs> is it the right word, the doozy? Okay, I mean, Henry Green's loving was there. My 
youth and college days just leaped out when I was in love with this guy that I'm sure um, nobody, I mean, not nobody here, but nobody in colleges most probably, and I don't mean the students, but the professors as well, most probably don't know about. And they had a great section on mystery, which I'm also in love with, you know, so it was like heaven. And I bought too many, I mean, not too many, but enough books so that I don't know how to carry them uh, back home. But, um, you know, the democratic space is that you look at these shelves and in this republic of imagination, you do not uh, need the ID cards or the passports that usually reality demands from you because you are not judged by your uh, nationality, uh, by your ethnicity, race, gender, or class, or um, anything, anything, any barrier that in reality prevents you from communicating. On these bookshelves in the library, everyone is gathered. Nobody is interested to know if um, Zora Neale Hurston was a Democrat or a Republican. Nobody is interested to know, I mean the first thing, at least the first thing that, I know that in academia this is the first thing that comes to some people's minds, but to most great readers, the first thing that comes to their mind is, well, is he a dead black male? Then. I shouldn't be reading. And then if she is an African-American and here I am from Middle East, should I be reading her? No. The whole point about a bookstore is that you go in there in order to know about others. And that is what today we are forgetting in this country, both in our political life as well as in our academic life. We, are forget we keep talking about others. Of course, fortunately, our new president, and, and please let me just joke without being political. I can't help it. He's such an amazing subject for jokes. And, <laughs> and, and, and it drives me nuts when I have to restrain myself because I don't want to go there. Because, because I think we have more important things to talk about, you know. But, but you know, the whole point about it is that the way this talk keeps coming about Muslims and, and, and immigrants and, 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 and Mexicans or others. Um, and, and what bothers me, and I will talk about that in more, um, um, uh, more fully, is the fact that um, uh, we keep talking about the other, but we really are not paying attention to the other. That is the problem we're facing. Um, on the right, we're not paying attention because we generalize them out of existence by saying all Mexicans are, for example, rapists or criminals. How many Mexicans have been openly talking about groping women? I don't know, but <laughs> that is beside the point. It is like hearing that and saying all white males in locker rooms um, are gropers, <laughs> you know? No. All white men in locker rooms come in all different shapes and from different backgrounds and they will act very differently and Mexicans as well. 
you know, and Muslims as well. But the whole point is that on the other side, we become, we try to be opposite of what the people we don't like the way they talk are. So we start saying, no, all Mexicans and all Muslims, none of them are racist. Only white male Americans are racist. I'm going into extremes. But the whole point is that both Mexicans and Muslims don't need either pity or slander. What they need is respect. And respect comes when we do not generalize people. Respect comes, that is why when you go into this bookstore, you see democracy at work. Because a great novel, the first thing, the first rule of being a great writer is to give voice. And the first rule of being a great writer is to give voice to those who are not like you. This, um, and, and I'm just randomly mentioning uh, people, um, you read, for example, Henry James and you find some of the most amazing women uh, in his novels, you know? And then you read James Baldwin, um, and I, uh, James Baldwin is so bloody relevant to, the, to our times, because you remember, he first wrote um, Go Tell It on the Mountains, and everybody, the love of America, let me generalize, Americans' love of generalization, they immediately said a great African-American, in those times they would say Negro, Negro writer has come into the world, you know. And then what does this great Negro writer do? The second book is Giovanni's Room about a young, white, gay male in Paris. And his publisher becomes really worried and says, we can't publish this. You're already known as a great black writer. And his agent tells him, burn this book. It will destroy your career. And what does this marvelous man tell them? I'm sorry, it's Baldwin, and Baldwin can say anything he wants to. I'm completely prejudiced, and I would not say, uh, it's like Trump supporters. I'm just a Baldwin supporter. So he says, I told them, go and fuck yourselves, <laughs> and went to England and published the book. Because Baldwin, who were his favorite writers? Henry James, Shakespeare, marvelous essay on Shakespeare. Negro spirituals, you know, and uh, the language of Bible. And he created single-handedly a new language. This is because when you are a writer, you, and some writers are horrible people. You, I mean, you know, a lot of times I really don't want to see the, the writers that I love because I think, God, they might be doing something really terrible and I, do, and I got the best of them. Why do I want to see them, you know? Um, and, but the point is that once they write, in order to attract the best readers, they can't be preaching. They can't be a dictator because a dictator wants to confiscate all the voices and turn it into one voice, his own. But 
A person who is democratic needs to not just fight, but to understand. Understanding becomes the basis of both your relationship with friends and with foes. Because a great general even cannot win a war without understanding who his enemy is. So a great writer gives voice to everyone. Jane Austen, look at those characters. You cannot possibly mistake Lady Catherine de Bourgh for Elizabeth, Elizabeth for Mary, Mary for Mrs. Bennet. Each one of these characters has her own or his own voice. So even the villain in a great novel has a voice and has a choice. And in these days that we are living, in this sort of divided society that we're living in, and, div and div divisiveness and, and ideological warfare comes out of the desire for comfort and complacency. Because when you have an ideological mindset, the world becomes so simple. There are white hats and black hats. And obviously, we're always the white hats, right? And, and, and because we're always the white hats, self-righteously, we can just negate and eliminate the rest. But democracy is so difficult, far more difficult, in fact, than your relationship with a totalitarian state. Because with a totalitarian state, you know where you stand. But with a democracy, you don't know where you stand. People are complex. They're contradictory, they're paradoxical. And you have to take into consideration all of this, and you have to take into consideration that in a democracy, you don't want to eliminate any voice. What you want is that not one voice become everybody's voice. That is the essence of democracy. And if our children from early childhood learn to listen to the stories and read the stories and see the stories, they will get used to this multiplicity and multivocality of voices. And that again is another danger which is not just political, that how little our children are getting from, uh, from stories. I think I spent all my time and I'm still in the first paragraph of this thing. <laughs> Aspen, you know, somehow, it's all Aspen. I, it's so wonderful to blame it on something else like Aspen. You know, it's the climate, the mountain makes you. Uh, and okay, so what I wanted to say, and the last part of my connections, was of course this amazing, amazing experience I had with the students at the Roaring Forks High School. And I promised them that I will embarrass them if any of them are here. Are, is anybody from Roaring Forks here? Could you please stand up and embarrass yourselves? I, I, I was telling them, you know, I always try to tell the young people that if you don't define yourselves, somebody else will. And because future literally belongs to you, you don't have much choice about that. You need to be informed, and you need to be informed not just through the internet. 
you need to be informed, first of all, through experiencing life. I was talking with Tori. Tori, may I tell that story? Where are you? She's not in here. Okay, I will tell it anyway. Uh, she was telling me how her ma how she was um, in middle school a real rebel and uh, maybe entitled, God knows. Anyway, her mother decides to teach her a lesson. And what does she do? She takes her to China and shows her how Chinese students live. The circumstances, the, the difficulties, the pain of life. And that, without telling her anything, is enough to make you understand how difficult it is for others to have what you take so much for granted that you don't see. And then later on in life, of course, she goes to Paris. And, and we were talking about the fact that we in America sometimes are so isolationist, we, we think that we are, you know, we are the world, but you know, you go to Paris, that beauty, that, that gorgeous harmony, that desire for beauty, the urge for beauty. When you come back to America and, and, and like those amazing people in David McCollum's Americans in Paris, you become more enriched. I mean, that was what was so amazing about America. The curiosity which is the backbone of every great work of art. They were curious about the other world and they were very new and they brought to this world, God, it is without reading history and that's another thing our students should be doing. Read history, read history. Don't go into Wikipedia under Jefferson and who was Jefferson, no. The stories are so compelling, much, I mean, as compelling as when you were kids and you were reading Harry Potter. As amazing that this group of rugged army that Washington was leading would win against the greatest army in the world. It is amazing that people like Thomas Paine and uh, uh, de Tocqueville, people from all over the world will come to this new world because this new world took the ideas from Europe and used it to bring something that Europe didn't have. To bring the idea of democracy so that majority of people will have what only minority had. And among the most important treasures that this the new democracy brought to the people was education. It was the right to imagination and ideas because ignorance is the first weapon any tyrant uses against the citizens of a country. The slaves were forbidden to read and write. Women did not read and write. Irish, the British would forbid the Irish from reading and writing. Oh my God, 10 minutes, I, okay. Um, <laughs> I am still on Aspen. Well, okay, I never get anywhere else. So, we will finish with the Irish here. 
And um, what I wanted to say that this group of people that I talked about, and I also talked with the prison guards, uh, not the prison guards, with the guides at the museum. <laughs> <laughs> the guides at the museum. This was the first time that I saw these guides, rather than telling me, shh, don't talk. They would come and talk to you and very proudly tell you all about their museums, their exhibitions, you know. And so I thought, my God, in these two days, just because I wrote a book and just because I love books, look at all this variety of people that I, I, I just became friends with almost, you know, that, I, I will, that will have now a place uh, in my memory every time I think of Aspen. And the last part of Aspen, which again um, brings me to the idea of fiction. And it is a very important part because especially today in this country, people talk about how, um, you know, my book, um, Republic of Imagination, began um, with this idea that many people would tell me, um, well, you were living in terrible, oppression, and obviously you would like to read books, but why do we need to read Great Gatsby? As if you should be oppressed and the books should be taken from you and you should be jailed and flogged in order to read Great Gatsby, you know? And, and so I went after giving the answer to this question um, in this book, whether a democracy can survive without a democratic imagination, because I felt that the crisis we were, we were uh, facing in this country was not a crisis that was simply economic or political. I feel that this crisis is a crisis of vision, that in order for you, for a country to develop and to go forward, you need the courage to have a vision and the courage to stand by that vision, and the courage to fail because of that vision, and the courage not to give up. That was also one other part of the American dream. As far I mean, we can all make up the dream. If Paul Ryan thinks that Ayn Rand's novels can fit the American dream, I think that Mark Twain and Baldwin um, can fit the American dream. Okay, so I go very fast now. Um, <laughs> It's, it, you know, we're always democratic until we get the microphone. Um, it, has, it, it has an amazing, um, amazing uh, effect on you. Um, what I wanted to say last, but not least, uh, was the fact that literature and, and arts, uh, people say that it is not real. They talk about it as entertainment. No. It is not simply entertainment. First of all, great works of art don't simply entertain us, and there's nothing wrong with entertainment, unless it's all Real Housewives of Atlanta and uh, you know um, things like that. But the whole point about it is that it is about life, the joy of being alive, and. That is one thing that I experienced in Aspen, which I want to share with you. Uh, 
I was telling the students today that we keep talking about all the things that are different between us and our cultures. Difference, but difference can be celebrated only when you have basic things to share. So curiosity about other ends in empathy with other because as the bard put the question to us, if you prick us, do we not bleed? And we all bleed. The mother in Iraq or the mother in Syria whose children have been bombed out of existence, they bleed. The woman in Afghanistan who's taken to a football stadium and has been executed because of the way she dresses, she bleeds. The young girl in Iran who is flogged for the way she looks, she bleeds like the mother in New Orleans whose life changes overnight because of a hurricane or because of a war, a mother whose son or daughter has been killed in Iraq or in Afghanistan or in Vietnam. We all bleed. And it is that common humanity which matters. It is what we share that matters. So we cannot say about others when in countries like Iran that had some of the most progressive laws about women, where you had, we had women ministers and a minister for women's affairs 40 years ago, you cannot tell a people like that that marriage, changing the law so that there will be marriage at the age of nine is your culture and your religion. You can tell them that these Iranian women, like Susan B. Anthony, like Harriet Beecher Stowe, like Sojourner Truth, like Harriet Topman, who spoke and who fought for the rights of women and who were jailed and who were told to be silent and who inch by inch won their rights in the countries of the West. Remembering our own history will help us understand other people and understand that no woman likes to be flogged or stoned and that what they give you as religion here is really confiscation of religion and use of it or abuse of it as political ideology, as an instrument of power, not as a religious faith and that more Muslims today are killed than any other than the seculars, than the Christians, than the Zoroastrians, um, than the Jews, in these countries there are Muslims who are killing dissident Muslims, who are flogging dissident women. If women believed that they should be dressed or act in a certain way, why do you need to flog them? I mean, it is so, such common sense that some of our academics don't really understand that you, when you force people, if tomorrow they force you to go to church, put a gun to your head, 
or take you to jail if you go to church. Does Christianity mean anything to you? If tomorrow the state becomes religion and that religion is reduced to Southern baptism, will this be religion? If that is not true of you, why be condescending about people in other parts of the world and think that, oh no, pursuit of um, the right to life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness is such an American thing. Heaven forbid an Iranian woman want to be happy. I put a fantastic video for the, the students today of the Iranian kids singing Will Farrell's Happy, dancing to Will Farrell's Happy. And I was going to tell them that you ask me what the Iranian kids are like, they're all like you. But you ask, but after they made this video, which went viral, two hours after that, they were jailed. And that's the difference. And that is the gift that immigrants who go through pain bring to you. The gift of reminding you that freedom is an ordeal. Freedom is a responsibility. Freedom doesn't go with complacency and with comfort. You have to fight like happiness. It is evasive. It has to be constantly pursued. This time I'm really finishing. And so the relationship between art and literature and life goes beyond politics. I was telling the students today, this fight and resistance for you should not be just about politics and political decisions and political views and belonging to a political party. For us in Iran, we learned that the fight for us was existential. That is what fiction teaches you. It goes after the one individual. It focuses on freedom of choice for every person in, uh, you know, from Jane Austen right down to here to Toni Morrison. It's about freedom of choice. And that is the dignity of being an individual. When that is taken away from you, they might as well kill you. They can kill you in many ways. When I was living in my country, a country that I love so much, but as a woman, as a teacher, as a writer, as a person who believed in human rights, they were asking me, not demanding that I not be these things. I had to either resist and become more myself, like the Iranian women did, or I had to die. Because this image of who I was was not me. And that is what is happening in this country today. The complacency, the love of celebrity from Michelle Obama to Beyonce to Kim Kardashian, heaven forgive her, they all are now celebrities. And they don't have names. Fiction is particular. It gives you a name. It makes you concrete as a unique individual. Michelle Obama is Michelle Obama married two kids and the first lady. Beyonce is a singer. Kim Kardashian, nobody, not even herself knows what she is. <laughs> we watch these people and we call everybody celebrity. I hate that word. 
We love entertainment which takes us away from ourselves. Our news has become entertainment. We love brands. We talk about Hillary Bland, Trump's brand, repackaging candidates. These bloody candidates have become like toothpaste because you constantly rebrand and repackage them, not according to who they are. It's not just you and me. It's the candidates, it's our politicians, our elite, who have also lost their individual in dignity when they can change their political positions with every season, nearly every week. Loss of dignity as individuals will lead to loss of freedom. So at the end, it is the political reality which fiction becomes immediately subversive of, and that is why we need to read. But it is also, fiction is resistance against the cruelties of life. Fiction is one of the most, imp I mean all art, but especially literature and especially fiction. It is con against a fight and a resistance against the absoluteness of death. It reminds us, it is guardian of memory. As Nabokov said, it is conclusive evidence that we have lived. So it goes far beyond me and Trump and Obama and that and this. It is about endurance, continuity as human beings. And today, uh, today was so amazing and I have been telling everybody, and I'll end by repeating what I've been telling everybody. Um, you come to a small place named Aspen, and all of a sudden, the town of your childhood becomes alive. You know, nobody believes this of Iran, but um, the town of my birth, Tehran, is surrounded by mountains. Ha an hour and a half from Tehran, you go skiing. The third highest peak in the world I used to see it every morning from the window of our house. Always a halo of snow around it, like a cap. And one of the biggest joys in my life, in my childhood, when the snow was still pure and not polluted, was that my mother would make us snow with homemade cherry sherbet. Oh. If the snow here is good enough, you should do it. And, and I loved to walk with my best friend on the snow, you know, the crunch under your boots. And we used to eat cream puffs and sometimes ice cream. And all of a sudden, I retrieved my lost Tehran in Aspen in the way the sun shone on the snow. And, um, you know, I thought, that is how you feel you are citizen of the world. That you belong to a specific place, but you also belong to so many other places. And so when I went, I walked home, and then at the end of my walk, I started going into the snow, where it was very deep, and then putting my hands in it, and getting handfuls of snow and making crunches, just walking and making crunches, walking and making crunches. And thank you, Aspen. Thank you, thank you.
I'm sorry. I I'm sorry I talked so much, and I did not say anything that I wrote down. But um, now it's your turn. You don't have to just ask questions. You can make comments. I've talked enough for all of us, so you can. <laughs> and there are two microphones. Um, I'm supposed to be seeing hands, and I don't see any. <laughs> yes, sir. What were you thinking of when you refused to wear the veil? When I refused to wear the veil or when I was forced to wear the veil? When you refused to wear the veil. The reason I refused to wear it was because, not, not because I was, some of my very good friends and students and relatives always wore the veil and I very much appreciated them and loved them and I still do. Uh, but I felt that if I wear the veil because someone else tells me, then I am um, not me. It's not just that my students wouldn't respect me because they see me without will one day, and then for measly money that I'm paid every month, now I wear the veil, you know. And I wanted to show them, like millions of Iranian women, that I am me, and you're not going to change me. And so I refuse to wear the veil. And thank you for that amazing question. Thank you so much. Yes. Do you want me to go first? Okay. Um, in your wonderful book, The Republic of Imagination, you described a scene that I've tried to describe to other people where you were in a Seattle bookstore signing books and a young Iranian student approached you and said, why are you here? If I recall this correctly, don't you know that Americans don't read? And I was really struck by that, partly because he went on to share about how much he knew about Western thought and literature and how little his peers in America knew. And I just thought, I wonder if you could elaborate on sort of that conversation and where you are with what he described about American students and American citizens. said in my talk. Um, she's um, alluding to the first um, part of uh, Republic of Imagination when this um, Persian kid, he was really angry. 
and he told me that you're wasting your time. These people are not like us, uh, who would Xerox and read hundreds of pages of Madame Bovary or, or, or Mark Twain. And, and the fact for, that was so painful for him was also heartbreaking for me, because in that, in Iran, uh, you know, you should just go on the web and, and, and see what comes out of the young Iranians. Because they were deprived of the world, they dis rediscovered the world through what I call its golden ambassadors. So we had to watch Marx Brothers and uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall's um, Big Sleep and Titanic through these forbidden videos if you were found with these videos, you would go to jail. Lolita and Madame Bovary had to be Xeroxed. So we would Xerox the books and, 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 and read them. So for this young man who had been flogged because he listened to Bon Jovi at that time, um, or because he... Um, wanted to read and live the way he wanted to, it was impossible to come to this country uh, and see how people didn't pay attention to culture. I had that experience with a Chinese girl as well. Uh, my book, I had the fortune to be translated my books into Chinese. And this girl was interviewing me. Uh, and we were sitting at a coffee shop close to Kennedy Center. and. She was so excited, and she was wearing a cap with American flag on it. And, and, and she gave me a thing from George Orwell. Uh, he said that, um, he said it was something about tyranny is when um, uh, not listening to what others say, something like that. It was a, anyway, she was so excited. She said, I'm going to the Millennium stage after this, and then I'm going to go to the museums, and they're all free. And you know this, and, I, and, and it just broke my heart, you know, that our kids every day pass this mall, pass the monuments, pass the museums, and they don't give a damn. But this Chinese kid and this Persian kid, they would give their lives to be there, and I have been with them there. And um, so that was one of the reasons I wrote Republic of Imagination, uh, because I don't believe that Americans all are like this generalization. And I'm glad that I wrote it, because then I meet people like you. <laughs> That gentleman. Um, you, like Nabokov, uh, write in a language that wasn't your original language. I wondered if you could talk about um, what the effect that English, the, the language itself, has had on your thinking and your, in what you write, if any. That it's different than Persian and it has a very different syntax and so on. But no, you. About me writing in English. In English, yeah. And, and what, what, what the English language, how it has affected you in your writing. Yeah. And I talk about it in this book as well that um, <clears throat> um, 
being an immigrant and living in two worlds um, and speaking these two languages, um, uh, it is both painful because you feel as if you belong to nowhere almost, you know, but it is also, especially for a writer, very refreshing. Um, for me, actually, English um, gives me so much freedom that sometimes the taboos in Iran would enter my play with language, you know, that I would not feel so free in Iran to write about. And um, there's also this um, sort of challenge, which I love, to sneak in your Persian, um, the nuances, the lights and shades of your home language into, um, into English. Uh, I'm not like that, but some of the great writers like Nabokov mischievously constantly do that. They constantly bring their Russia, you know, so when you read Lolita, which is the most American of his novels, there is that um, um, passion, almost unbridled passion and, and exaggeration uh, of Russian um, that English is so flexible uh, to accept. So actually I love writing in English um, and, and I love writing in Persian and sneaking my English into it. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, knowing other languages and writing in other languages extends your horizon and makes you always uncertain enough to never become complacent. You always feel worried that you know, you're not doing your best. 